All right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. Here we are in Job 9 and 10, Lesson 6. You know, we haven't, we haven't done this a whole lot yet, but I'd love to kind of look at uh, Mindy's painting here. Kevin, when you look at Mindy's painting, what, what are some of the features, what, what's something that you really like about Mindy's painting? <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd say I like it, but... Well, Kevin... No, I mean, what stands out is how dark it is and the suffering. I wouldn't say I like the darkness, but it depicts the suffering. All right, TJ. (laughs) Uh, I mean, with the darkness of it, um, I like how you have that one lone flower that sticks out. Yeah, this is called, she chose, it says, the lotus plant. I'm reading some of Mindy's notes here. The lotus plant, the flower for this painting, it's mentioned in Job 40, 21 and 22, describing the surroundings in the landscape where the behemoth lives, where God speaks to Job. Under the lotus plant it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surrounded it. So kind of a a really cool picture. Kind of, and I love how it brings out the color here. And so, Rich, you even mentioned one of your favorite chapters was what chapter? Uh, my favorite chapter is when it starts in chapter 38. Job 38. So Mindy painted this sky to portray God who spoke out of the storm found in Job 38. A stormy sky. The more I read through the Old Testament, Mindy wrote, the more I see God in all creation, especially in the sky. Lots of descriptive words throughout the book of Job. Then you obviously have the hands stretched out. Initially, she had Job's head and body, but she decided to paint it out and just leave the hands. And it was better to put themselves in the place of the hands rather than body, and put yourself in the place of those hands. How often do we go through suffering in life and cry out, why God? I think that's a cool picture. And, you know, it's, it, it could be a why God. It could be God help me, whatever the context is. And amidst all of this, you know, I, I kind of, when I look at this lotus plant, you know, it does make me think of our, our little phrase here. This is an important phrase, the promised redeemer. And we'll get to that when we get into Job 19. But amidst the storm, there is always hope, which is really where we're going to go to at the end of today's lesson. So now here's the deal. We have the the famous friends, Eliphaz, and we have Bildad so far that we've gone to. Now these two guys, there's going to be a third one so far, right? But today we're going to focus in on Bildad. And, and, and really, Job's response to Bildad. Eliphaz made his comments. Job responds. Bildad makes his comments. Based on, most of it was based on tradition, right? Most of it was based on tradition. Now, Job, in Job 9 and 10, replies to Bildad. It's just kind of like his friends came to hang out with him. They quietly observed for seven days. They didn't say anything. Job cries out. Why God mentality, Right? And then their friends just say, oh, I can tell you why you're having this problem. (laughs) Oh, I can tell you why. And that's what Bildad's getting ready to do. And then as a result, Job then responds. So this is Job's first reply to Bildad. And if we can go back to our friend here, his picture, Kevin. Uh, You have Eliphaz here on the left. You have Bildad coming to him. And then, you know, obviously we have Zophar on the right. And Job answered in verse 1. 
He says, then Job answered, yes, I know what you've said is true. But how can a person be justified before God? Apparently, according to Nelson's commentary, and I would agree, he, he agrees that Bildad has made some, some valid points. But then in verse 3, look what he does. Look what Job says. If anybody wanted to take him to court, I'm sorry, who would be him? God? <laughs> if anybody wanted to take God to court, he could not answer God once in a thousand times. In other words, if there was a lawsuit to take place between Job and God, if I had to take God to court, I'm not really sure I could answer God once in a thousand times. Yeah, I'd like to have a legal case before the Almighty. And in verse four, it says, God is wise. God is all powerful. Who has opposed him and come out unharmed? I mean, let's go back. I want to go back to verse three for a second. Like if you're going to bring a case, you, you can't go against God uh, and win. It, in fact, it's useless to try. And here's why it's useless to try for four reasons. Okay. Constable says it's useless to take God to court. Useless. Right. Okay. Useless to take God to court. One is, is because he's mighty. Two, ignore the cries because he's against me. Now, these are the arguments. Okay. I, I should, I should write all these out, but I won't, I don't want to. Another thought is that you would destroy both the innocent and the wicked. So that won't work. And then uh, to try to figure out our, uh, if it's a problem or a sin, like basically all of our arguments that we have before God to take court, it doesn't matter. It's like, remember that little chart we've been drawing all the time? Am I, am, am I suffering because of sin? Am I suffering because of chastising? Am I suffering because of being strengthened? Am I suffering because of an opportunity for God to show his grace, you know, and in his, um, in his mercy? Or is it useless just because God's never going to tell us because it's unknown? It's useless to take God to court because he is wise and all powerful who has opposed him and come out unharmed. Verse five. And oh, by the way, I wouldn't want to be examined by God, by the way. He removes mountains without their knowledge, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its places so that its pillars tremble. He commands the sun not to shine and seals off the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. I love what Wearsby says about, you know, how can I think about it this way? That's what we've been reading. How can I be righteous before God? I mean, we've been talking about all of these amazing characteristics and attributes and qualities of the things that God does. How can I even remotely be righteous before him? And in verse 11 of Job 9, it says, if he passes by me, I, I wouldn't see him. If he goes right by, I wouldn't recognize him. <laughs> if he snatches something, who can stop him? Who can ask him, what, uh, excuse me, what are you doing, God? <laughs> it's a big question. How can I be righteous before God? And then Wearsby summarizes it even more so. When you get into verses 1 through 13, right? He then says, how can I, and I like this, and we've talked about this already, but just it kind of clarifies it. How can I meet God in court? 
So you know, Kevin, in verse 13, I want to do something. I, I just, I overlooked one verse. It says, God does not hold back his anger. Rahab's assistants cringe and fear beneath him. So here you have another name, this Rahab, another name for like what they would consider a mythical sea monster. Seriously, an equivalent of a Leviathan. Here you have God that doesn't even hold back his anger. And these people even fear before God. So if these animals, these people, these animals, if they have this, this fear, I mean, how can I be righteous before God? So then how can I naturally even meet God in court? I mean, God is just above and beyond anything we can above, uh, we can think or imagine. I mean, it's kind of extreme. So how on earth could I even remotely have an argument before God, let alone against God? Verse 14 says, how then can I answer him or choose my arguments against him? Even if I were right, I couldn't answer. I could only beg my judge for mercy. In verse 16, if I summoned him and he answered me, just, just maybe I do not believe he would pay attention to what I said. Verse 17, he batters me with a whirlwind and multiplies my wounds without a cause. He doesn't let me catch my breath, but soaks me with bitter experiences. In other words, I don't think it's going to go well. He doesn't let me, I love this. He doesn't let me go back again, Kevin. He doesn't let me catch my breath. He soaks me with bitter experiences. And then he says, it's a matter of strength. Look, he is the mighty one. I do like that, that line, it's a matter of strength. It's this building up. He's the mighty one. It's a matter of justice. Who can, who can summon him? And in verse 20, even if I were in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, my mouth would declare me guilty. Though I am blameless, remember he's talking to Bildad, I no longer care about myself. I renounce my life. It's all the same. Therefore, I say he destroys both. Look at this, the blameless and the wicked. This line right here in verse 22, you guys, what does this do to all of their theology? It kind of throws it out the window because basically... One, he's been arguing there is no blameless people, and so therefore God, God destroys. You can't, you can't come blameless before a righteous God. Richie, anything to what this does for the theology? Yeah, they started off saying that you you had to have done something wrong. Therefore, this is the result of what you had done something wrong. And Job is saying, I haven't done anything wrong. And it doesn't matter whether you know, you're wicked or you're blameless. God is ultimately the authority over both of them. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And in verse 23, absolutely right, guys. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Verse 24, the earth is handed over to the wicked. He blindfolds its judges. If it isn't he, then who is it? What does that question mean, you guys? Like, you mean if God's not doing that, who's doing this? God's ultimately in charge. Wouldn't you agree? I think so. Kevin, just own it. You got this. Verse 25, then it just says this. My days fly by faster than a runner. They flee without seeing any good. They sweep by like boats made of paprius, like an eagle swooping down on its prey. In other words, I'll be honest, my life kind of stinks right now. If I said I'll forget my complaint, change my expression and smile, 
I would still live in terror of all my pains. I know you will not acquit me. He's talking to the Lord. Since I will be found guilty, why should I labor in vain? It's already a done deal. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, then you dip me in a pit of mud and my own clothes despise me. Like my filth is so bad that the clothes would refuse to actually cover my body. Who I am as a person, it's so bad that I, I'm just, I'm wretched. And in verse 32, for he is not a man like me, God, that I can answer him. That we can take each other to court. This isn't even a fair discussion. In fact, it's silly. Verse 33, there is no one to judge between us. You know, you guys have, you've seen this, but I'm just going to do this. Job or human, right? This is us. There's no bridge, you guys, between Job and God. There, there's nobody in between. There's, there's nobody that can bring this thing together. And it just says this, there, there's no mediator that can say, you know, I, I can do my hands on both. He says in verse 34, let him take away, let him take his rod away from me so his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but that is not the case. I am on my own. Job doesn't have a representative to God. Is that true? Job doesn't have a lawyer to get to God. Job doesn't have a mediator to get to God. That's because we are in um, the Old Testament. But praise the Lord, God eventually gave us a mediator. Praise God that amidst the despair, <laughs> can I just tell you, he gave us one. Kevin, can you go to 1 Timothy 2.5 for me, please? 1 Timothy 2.5, and I want to begin to unfold the mediator that we've all been given. For there's one God. And one mediator between God and man, a man named Christ Jesus. So can I just tell you, your mediator is Christ. Job didn't know how to get to God. But in 1 Timothy 2.5, he says, no, 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 no. I, you all have to go to court before God, but praise the Lord, we have a mediator. His name is Jesus. Kevin, can you go to Hebrews 9, verse 15 for me, please? Actually, go, go to verse 6, 1 Timothy 2, 6. 1 Timothy 2, 6. This is the mediator, Christ, and look, look what it says. It says, he gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. So Christ comes in and gives his ransom for us so that we have access to God. The word ransom, he gives himself up on our behalf so that we now have access. So that when we are in court before God, because Kevin, I think ultimately it's a fair statement, we will all have to face the judgment of God. We'll all have to face the quote-unquote courtroom of heaven, the courtroom of eternal life. Which way will we go based on our mediator? And Job says at this point, you guys, I am on my own. Can I just tell you, praise God, we have somebody that's for us. In fact, let's go, Kevin, if we can. Go to Isaiah 64, 6. Please, Isaiah 64, 6. 
Now think about it this way, you guys. All of us have become like something unclean and all of our, our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. This is exactly what Job was talking about. And all of us wither like a leaf and all our iniquities and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. So all of us are, are polluted garments. All of our iniquities, they carry us away like the wind and unless we have somebody that can take us before the throne. And so in Hebrews 9, verse 15, Hebrews 9, 15, it just says this, just as a picture of the, the true mediator. Therefore, Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Wow. So because a death has taken place for redemption from what? from all the sins and transgressions that took place under the first covenant. So there was a death, that death came through Christ. Christ serves as our mediator. Job is saying, man, if I have to come before, the, before God and argue my case, it will never work. We need somebody else that's going to do this. There's a promised Messiah, a promised Redeemer that's going to do this. And Jesus comes in and says, oh, by the way, that's, that's me. I know this is going to sound elementary. I know this is going to sound simple. But I'm going to just talk to you about how all of us are in the state of Job. And when we begin to understand the process of how to get from one to the next. Kevin, can you go to Romans 3.23? The reality is, is that before, when we come before the throne in Romans 3.23, on this little colorful wristband, it says, for all are guilty. Everybody. You're standing before God and you have to say guilty or not guilty. You say guilty. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When it means fall short, it means you'll never hit God's status. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many attempts you, you have to, to try to convince God that you should have an argument, that you should try to convince God that you should win your case, you'll always fall short. And so what you see with Romans 3.23 is that every person sins. And that sin, when you're at the courtroom before God Almighty, as it talks about here in Job 9, if you go to Romans 6.23, so it goes from Romans 3.23 to Romans 6.23. What we have earned because of sin equals death. Pretty straightforward. Something that you've earned, a wage, something that you've deserved because you're working hard because of sin, though, all of us equal death. So when you come before the throne, automatically, because you sin, he knows that you're going to have eternal death. But praise be to God, this little drawing that we have here. Okay, it's a pretty simple drawing. Kevin, if you go to Romans 5.8, Romans 5.8, it just talks about, well, how do you get to the other side? How do you get access to God in the courtroom? He says, well, God proves, but God proves his own love for us. Interesting enough, there's that. I know, I know this sounds obvious, but that word love, something that his friends weren't doing. <laughs> but God proves his own love for us in that while we're still sinning, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the bridge. The Jobs, the humans that are stuck on one side, Christ actually comes in and gives us an outlet, an access point, a bridge to God in the courtroom. And then you get to this component here, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You know, Rich, in a courtroom, <laughs> who does the defending for you? That would be Jesus. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything in this context. You simply have to, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for you are saved by grace through 
faith. Not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Verse 9, not from works so that no one can boast. You can't be like, hey, judge, excuse, excuse me. Did you see how many Bible verses I read this last week? Not going to work. Hey, I actually did all my homework with Revive School. God, not going to work. Hey, I fed all the orphans in my neighborhood. Not going to work. Hey, did you know I shoveled snow for, yes, actually all of the widows across my county road? That's not going to work. Scripture says nothing that you can do can actually earn your way to God. The judge doesn't care. He's not going to listen. The only thing he's looking for is who's your mediator. And if you believe that Christ is your mediator, that Christ is for the for a conversation here, that he is your eternal lawyer that's going to represent you all the time. And when you have faith that Christ died on the cross to wipe off the sin and the death, guess what? Scripture says when you have faith in him, your life can actually give you access to the other side. You know how freeing this is? (laughs) As if you had to come to the courtroom and the judge looks at you and he sees the lawyer. And he asks you one question, though. He says, Do you know this man in front of you? Do you know this lawyer? And if you say, yes, he is my Lord. And if you say, yes, I believe he is my Lord. I believe that he's supposed to represent me. The scripture says, if you actually believe that God raised him from the dead, the scripture says, you will be saved and you have full access to me, he says. Romans 10, 10 says, one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10 When you believe this and you actually say this before the Almighty, you get life. I don't know. I think think it's an actual really powerful image of Job saying, there's no way I can come before the Almighty judge. But when you have faith in what Christ did, you will get life. Kevin, can you do me a favor? Can you go to 2 Corinthians uh, 5... 21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So Christ, you know what He did? He took all, don't, don't hang on here for a second. He took on all our boils. He took in all of our symptoms. He took on every kind of disease, every kind of infliction, every kind of iniquity, every kind of transgression, every kind of sin. And Christ says, I will take all of that on. I don't deserve it. I don't even need this, but I'm going to take this. Why? So that you can become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus becomes our mediator. I don't know, you guys, when you when you see all this, when you hear all this, I'm going to go real practical for a second, real personal for a second. Uh, how, how would you say Christ has changed your life? I'll give you time to think. I'll give you time to process through this. I know that sounds like an obvious question. But when you understand how he's changed your life, you will always realize what he's done for you. I think for me, when I was 12 years old and I went up to, you know, just to be a kid, just to come up to the front, when I realized when the light bulb went off that, that Christ actually was my savior, it was kind of this it was this growing process. You know, when people leave a courtroom, I think this is a true statement, the quote-unquote criminals, they don't become instantly better, do they? 
No, it's a process. It's a time. And I, I think for me, that's what's happened. Once I realized who Christ was, I started to grow in this process of integrity, to grow in this process of fearing God, to grow in this process of turning away from evil. But it didn't happen overnight. But as long as I kept my eyes on the mediator, as long as I kept my eyes on Christ, who was representing me before the Almighty Father, I was okay. But the second that I turned around and I look back on my sin and I look back on the pride, I look back on the lust, I look back on the impatience, I look back on the jealousy, I look back on the envy, whatever those things. As soon as I went back to my old way of doing things, I, I, I live like that. But the second that I always kept going back to focusing on the mediator, everything begins to change. And what I see with these three guys, it's like they live in the past and he is living in the present. And I just want to just say Christ can change your life when you live in the present, not in the, in, in, in the stage of, of the past as a victim. He sets you free from that. And that's the whole point of representing you before the, the, the Father. He says, I've taken care of this. He is no longer guilty anymore. So why would I live like the way I've done in the past? There's this young girl, you guys, in Ohio. It drives me crazy. She accepted Christ. She got baptized. You guys would know this girl if I say this. But then she keeps going back to this old way of lifestyle. She posts things on Facebook. I'm going back to this lifestyle. I'm going back to this lifestyle. And the next thing you know, she's back walking with the Lord. And then she goes back to this lifestyle. I don't actually understand that, you guys. When you keep your eyes on the mediator, he changes everything about you. And I think when I began to realize I don't need that old way of life, then I'm free to run. Kevin, Rich, Tom, I mean, I just, I don't know. I just feel like somebody needs to hear this. How, Kevin, how has he changed your life? One of the biggest things for me is like just fear of, of not being in control. And so just slowly, I mean, it's a bit, like I said, a process. You learn uh, when you go where he has you to go, then there's, there's things that happen. I mean, that things start falling in line. Does that mean that it's there's no suffering a lot? No, that doesn't mean that. But you you can look in the rearview mirror and you can go, oh, that's why God put me there. That's why, you know, uh, when I fought doing those things, then it it was even harder. So why not allow him to be in control? Rich, what do you want to add to that? Anything? For me... I always have to go back to, like, the reason why I like chapter 38 and 40 was because I can I can figure things out. God's given me certain giftings to where I can figure things out, but it doesn't matter how well I can figure things out. The reality is he's way smarter than I am, and ultimately I'm judged not based on what I can figure out, but based on the mediator that I have. And so I have to always trust God in those situations, kind of like what Kevin says about letting go of those things that what I can and can't figure out. And letting God take control of my life for those things because ultimately he has nothing but good for me. I really like that. Um, I'm just looking up a text here. Uh, Kevin, do you mind if you would, would you go to Galatians 2.16? I think this is just, it, it goes along with what you're saying. Just as you were talking, this was a prompting here. It just says that know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. And I think that's what we're getting to is that we, we, can't, we can't keep trying to do this ourselves. Job says, if it was up to me, it won't work. 
It can't work because I'm human. But that's what I love about he's setting the stage and saying, you're right, it doesn't work. But that's why Christ came, because Christ says, I can take care of this. And in fact, in Hebrews 8, 6, this is how we'll close it all. In Hebrews 8, 6, Christ, it's an awesome picture. The writer of Hebrews describes this. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant. It no longer has to do with the law and trying to live up to the 613 standards, which has been legally enacted on better promises. Christ says, oh, by the way, I am the better covenant. I am the mediator between all of these things. Because it was up to us, as Job said, it won't work. Praise God for Job's stance saying, I can't do this. Because he's God and I'm not. But Jesus gives us access and he gives us full access. All you have to do is have faith that Christ gives you that access. All right, guys. Guys, thanks for your input today. This has been Job 9 and 10 and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.